Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis, news, and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Sean Spear in conversation with David Frum. Enjoy. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Frum for the second installment of our new bi-weekly podcast and video series, From Dialogues. David, as listeners and viewers will know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're going to start abroad, and then we plan to end up on some issues closer to home. Thanks again for joining us today, David. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. Earlier last month, you wrote in The Atlantic about the nexus between Europe's stance towards Russia and its own energy woes. What's the link here? How has Europe's energy dependence on Russia come to shape its foreign policy? Well, As you and I speak in early February, we are standing on the brink of what could be a devastating war on the European continent. The reassuring news is that many people in Ukraine itself are insisting that they don't think that war is necessarily inevitable. But here in Washington and the Biden administration, the the mood is almost certain that something terrible is coming from Russia heading westward. It may not be a classic invasion, although that is not to be ruled out, but devastating force is what is expected and the possibility of many, many people fleeing westward for safety. And that could have begun to happen at the time people hear this this dialogue. So with all somberness about that, everything everything we say is is conducted with, we don't know the outcome, but we um, we are hoping for the best, preparing for the worst. One of the reasons Russia has behaved so aggressively is because it can count on a lot of immunity from Western sanctions because of Europe's oil dependence, gas dependence. Europeans import enormous amounts of gas to heat their homes and cook their food. Russia provides, depending on the country, somewhere between one third and one half that natural gas. Um, Germany and Italy are especially dependent on Russian gas. And that is something that has grown up over many years. Russian gas has been cheap. Uh, Russia has been regarded as a reliable supplier, and Russia is now calling calling that shit. Um, Russia began to squeeze its exports of gas to Europe beginning in the spring and accelerating to the summer. What normally happens is the gas pipelines cannot carry enough gas to meet the week-by-week needs of Europe in winter. So Europeans import much more than they need in spring and summer accumulate those reserves in giant storage facilities, natural. I mean, uh, salt, former salt mines or undersea uh, pockets. Um, they, they accumulate the gas in the warm weather months and then withdraw it along with the continuing flows uh, from r- other suppliers in the cold weather months. In Beginning in April, Russia under-delivered 
what was its, its usual flows. And that became suspicious, especially in the summer, because the price began to rise. And you would think, well, if the problem before is they didn't like the price, by August, what was not to like? It was some of the highest prices ever recorded. And in October, the prices were reaching record levels, 10 times what was being paid in North America for the same, for the same fuel. And yet the Russian gas did not come. So Europe began this crisis with the lowest inventories of natural gas in, I, I can't remember how long, probably since the uh, oil shocks of the 1970s. So they were, they were really at the margin. And that gave Russia a lot of leverage to advance the policy that, that it has been advancing. If we get out of this with some kind of security, if Russia's deterred, if, if we have a, um, some kind of moderate outcome, energy has to be high on the agenda. And Canada has a very important part to play, as you and I will discuss, in reaching an energy solution. What's extraordinary, as I read the piece, is um, for all the speculation about the potential for sanctions from America, Europe, and and others vis-a-vis Russia, that this supply crunch that seems to have been manufactured, at least in part, for geopolitical reasons, is almost functioning like reverse sanction. And in so doing, um, putting real pressure on Germany and other European countries and in effect, as you outline in this this piece that our, our listeners and readers ought to read, influencing their foreign policy and, and national security decisions. Um, so it, it seems to me it begs the question: How does Europe get out of this mess? Well, in in, in the near term, there isn't a, there isn't a good solution. There's some emergency shipments that can be put together. The Biden administration is trying to do that. Um, you can move liquid natural gas across the oceans to Europe, and there is liquid natural gas from the United States. Uh, from Canada, from Nigeria, from uh, the Middle East, especially Qatar. Uh, the problem is uh, liquid natural, natural gas. Gas is sold on contracts. And so the gas is spoken for. And it's expensive to store. So most suppliers produce enough to meet their contracts. So at any given time, there is not a big amount of excess inventory that you can call forth. And with liquid natural gas, unlike gas from a pipeline, you can and yes, the Russians could, or the um, Algerians who also are on a pipeline, they could increase production, and the Algerians seem to be cooperating. But getting more liquid gas over the ocean is more difficult because your constraint is not just the gas. The problem is you have to take gas and smush it into tiny little pockets that liquefy, and that takes big facilities, and they're very expensive. You'll read that there's been a lot of argument about Europe building facilities to receive the gas, but the True long-term constraint is the facilities on our side of the ocean to compress the gas. And the facilities to compress the gas are much more technologically complicated and much more expensive than the facilities to receive the gas. It's about 10 to 1 ratio. It's about $500 million to build a facility to receive gas, about $5 billion euros to build a facility to compress the gas. And then there's some other problems, which is that Asia needs, needs more and more gas. So this is where Canada comes in in an important way, because the Americans have been supplying Asia and Canada has not because Canada doesn't have a pipeline yet that can reach across Canada to a port to put stuff on boats to Asia. When um, the Prince Rupert, there's a facility being built in Prince Rupert. I understand it's in British Columbia that it's nearly finished, but the pipeline has been interrupted by protests and illegal activity and completing that pipeline to Prince Rupert is the most important thing probably Canada can do for global security to get Canadian natural gas on a boat to Asia. That, and here's the key contribution Canada's making that doesn't have to go through the Panama Canal because the, the canal is nearing capacity. So in an ideal world, what you would imagine is American gas flowing to the uh, Gulf Coast, getting on tankers to Europe, some American gas going to their West Coast port, some Canadian gas going to Canada's West Coast 
export to supply Japan and Korea. And I want to say one more thing. I know I've given you a long answer. I'm going to anticipate what people are going to say, which is what about climate? And I've been writing about this issue for a long time. I'm very seized of the climate issue, but gas is a crucial transitional future. The future the climate future has to be nuclear plus renewables. But gas is the way to get there. And if we don't use gas, the real world alternative to more gas is not more renewables, it is more coal. And that's what you've been seeing happening in Europe and especially in Germany over the past five years. It's such an important point, David. And we're seeing that debate play out in Canada between those who want to use our pre-existing oil and gas resources as a transition to a, a net zero emissions future, and one that wants to shut down oil and gas production now, today, without a sufficient plan for for what come, comes next. Let me just come back, though, to some of the key ideas in your article and um, that you just outlined here. One of the things that struck me in reading your essay is the interrelationship between energy policy and foreign policy and, and national security. In Canada, there's a tendency to, to think about these issues in isolation, you know, to the extent that energy touches on other policy areas, as you say, it, it, it's now part of the, the climate change paradigm. But we don't tend to think about Canada's oil and gas resources on one hand, and it's in a relationship with our national interests or, or foreign policy considerations on the other. Do you, do, you, do you want to just reflect on the need for Canada to have a kind of more integrated view of its national interests and its broader foreign policy agenda? North America sits on top of a giant sea of gas. Um, and this is a pretty new phenomenon that the United States has only been a net exporter of natural gas since the second Obama term. And Canada has still only begun to develop its natural gas resources. The action for a long time was in oil, not gas. The good news is the developed world seems to have reached, remember when people talked about peak oil back in 2007-8, they meant that there would come a day when the world would not be able to produce any more oil. Well, that's never going to happen. But there is going to be peak oil and that the world is going to reach its, the peak of its interest in consuming oil. And in the developed world, it looks like that's coming sometime in the current decade. We, we, we hit peak coal in the first decade of the 21st century. And we're going to hit, at least in the developed world, peak oil in the 2020s when we're going to use less and less, not because there isn't oil, but because we're using less. We're using it for fewer things. And we have had this extraordinary renewables development. That is a tremendous boon. But people need, and Canadians, when they think about this, need to understand both the potential of renewables, but also the limit. Because the big problem with renewables is their energy is not available on man's timetable. Their energy is available on God's timetable. Uh, when the sun is shining, there's a lot of solar power. When the wind is blowing, there's a lot of wind power. But when those things are not happening and people want power, what do you do then? And that's why there is no separating renewables from other steady, more controllable sources. Nuclear is a great source because nuclear human beings can control. Hydropower, although when we get the ability to develop more of it in northern Canada, for example, that, that is controllable. Uh, but the renewables aren't. And, and gas, of course, is the ultimate controllable fuel. And so you've got to join your renewables to something else. And gas is especially powerful because it's a fuel that is not only producing electricity, but that can heat homes. And Canada is going to have to find some way to get its gas to the world or else see the world using more coal. And I really, last thing about this, I really urge people to think about this as a global and not a developed world problem. Um, and to understand, we are on the way to the majority of the world's coal being burned in China. Uh, India gets three quarters of its power from coal. So we have to have solutions 
where energy, India and China get offered better possibility. I mean, there's, there's going to need to be a little bit of an um, iron fist. They're going to need to be threatened with carbon tariffs if they don't decarbonize. Uh, we will lock your products out of our markets if you if they are produced in this way. But there has to be a hand of welcome. And we have solutions for you. Is China's energy poor? Um, nuclear, we, we should be welcoming it if China develops more nuclear power plants. We should be welcoming it if India develops more nuclear power plants. But they're going to need gas and they're going to need it probably from North America. Uh, and, and I think a, a part of that equation will require some type of agreement uh, globally on an accounting mechanism with respect to emissions that enables exporters like Canada to recognize the global contribution it's making to emissions reduction by exporting its cleaner and lower emitting forms of of energy. Um, I have you here, David. You, you know, you're, you've thought deeply about global affairs and foreign policy issues, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a question that I've I've long wanted to ask someone of your expertise and pedigree. The Russia-Ukraine issue is really an, another example of Vladimir Putin shaping geopolitics and global development. And it, I've often wondered, what's behind that? Why does uh, Putin in particular and Russia in general seem to play such an oversized role in the world? Is it their, the country's nuclear capacity? Is it their historic explanations? This is a country with a GDP per capita of you know, barely $10,000, yet it, it just so looms so large in the world and on these issues of geopolitics and global security. What's behind that? Is he the best poker player in modern history? Well, think of it this way. The Russian GDP, total GDP in Russia is about the same, a little less than total GDP in Canada. Now, if someone were to propose Canadians, I've, I've got a plan for the Canadian future. Why doesn't Canada become an international rogue state constantly threatening its neighbors? <laughs> Canadians, I, I don't think that looks like a promising choice. Um, but when you compare and contrast Russia and Canada, you see the differences, which is Russia is, um, it may be poor, but it is a highly populous country. And it's surrounded by smaller countries that may be richer, but are much less populous. It retains a willingness to use violence, which its neighbors don't have. And if you've ever played any of those children's board games, you understand there's a lot of power that comes from being in the corner of the board. And they, as a Eurasian power, they're in the corner of the board. And yes, they have they have, they are in some abstract sense between Germany and China. But as a practical matter, they bound Europe on the eastern side, and and uh, and they are by far the most potent state in their vicinity. And they also have a history, and the history is a particularly tragic one because the history of Russia, the lesson they draw from their history, I think it's a false lesson, but it's a lesson they draw is Russia has two choices, which is either be the victim of the aggression of others or aggress upon others. That Russia has never lived in any kind of stable harmony with the rest of, of Europe or, or the Middle East. It is in medieval times, it was the victim of these Mongol eruptions from Central Asia. Uh, it was the victim of Ottoman slaving that probably the total number of people taken out of what is now Russia, what is now Ukraine, what is now Poland by 
slavers taking them south was probably almost as much as the number of people who were slaved out of Africa to the West. It was it happened over a much longer period of time. And of course, there are no records. So uh, whereas the, the transatlantic slave trade kept many records. So we, we can quantify the transatlantic slave trade better. But historians who look at it think, yeah, they, the Russians and Ukrainians and Poles and other peoples like that were, were slaved on an African scale over a thousand years. And so the lesson they learned is you need very, very, you need to be the strongest cat on the block or you will be the victimized. And of course, you know, people remember Hitler, they remember Napoleon, they, Russia was attacked by the Swedes uh, before that, and, so, and uh, by the Poles before the Swedes. So the Russian lesson from history is you're either bullying everybody to the West or you're being bullied by, by others. And that's it. There is no, they have never worked out a system of foreign policy that allows them to live harmoniously as one European country among others. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you, based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. If I can just ask one final question about these issues before we move to wrap up with some discussion about issues closer to home. You know, as you know, that Canada has strong ties to Ukraine. Um, thousands of Canadians have family and, and, and direct connections in the country. We've observed, of course, the limits on the Biden administration in terms of uh, supporting Ukraine in, in the current context. Do you have any thoughts or advice on how uh, Canadian policymakers should be thinking about uh, Russia's ag aggression to, to Ukraine? Well, here are some things that I think Canada can, can usefully do. I mean, the direct aid, I think Canada is at the limit of its capacities already. And no one is proposing that NATO soldiers go and fight in Ukraine. That commitment has never been made. The Ukrainians don't expect it. There are, after all, 50 million Ukrainians, and they have military traditions of their own. Canada could, but there are two things that Canada could do, one very short term, one longer, is Canada can be an interlocutor with other NATO partners to say, it's not just the Americans who are telling you, you have to be serious about lethal aid to Ukraine and about sanctions. Uh, and that's a message Canada needs to be taking to Germany, to Italy. The Germans, by the way, are volunteering to be the bad boy here, but they are not the lone culprit. That, that the Germans are speaking, but the Italians and others are nodding along quietly. They're not volunteering to head the accommodate Russia parade, but they are met, they are walking in that same parade. And so Canadian diplomacy can be saying, you know what, Canada is strongly with the American point of view. Britain is strongly with the American point of view. It's not really the American point of view. It's the uh, collective security point of view. Um, and we are all judging you and, and pressing you. And then the second thing over the medium term is finish the pipeline to Prince Rupert. And I don't know how it became acceptable in Canada that when a decision is made in a legal way, 
when work begins, that small bands of people with private grievances can use violence to stop work, and that that is just a normal cost of doing business in Canada. That cannot be acceptable. And if, if you're impatient with the truckers in Ottawa, if you don't like these anti-vaxxers in, in the United States, if you, don't, if you mistrust those people who come to American polling places bearing firearms to threaten people who vote the way the firearm bearer thinks the wrong way, you should feel the same way about people who stop legal roads, legal pipelines. It is private violence for a private quarrel, and it should never be tolerated. That's a great point. We'll, we'll continue to monitor these issues, but I, I think uh, viewers and, and listeners are, are hearing from you uh, just the importance of thinking in an integrated way about domestic and, and, and foreign policy, and in, in particular, in this case, the role that energy development can, can play in, in actually advancing the country's uh, foreign policy goals. If we can just wrap up closer to home, you know, we're, we're having this conversation days following the sacking of Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole by the Parliamentary Caucus. In the coming days and months, the party will be thrown into a leadership race. I won't ask you to weigh in on matters of internal politics, but there seems to me to be some parallels to where the Conservative Party of Canada finds itself today and where the Republican Party found itself post-2008. Uh, one of my favorite books that you've written, David, is your book, Comeback, in 2009, in which you outlined a renewed agenda that spoke to the interests, needs, and aspirations of working class voters. And you, you called on the party, in effect, to go through a process of renewal that we now know in hindsight wasn't heated and, and the outcomes of that are still manifesting themselves. So just at a big picture level, what advice might you share from the experience within Republican politics from, say, 2008? To the president, and, and what do, what what should Canadian conservatives take from that experience? I think that the most important thing Canadian conservatives can learn from watching the United States is the way the difference between the way the Conservative Party of Canada and Canadian parties generally function from their American counterparts. In the United States, politics is a, it's a two party system. The politics are very tribal. So if conservative Republicans can gain control of the Republican Party center, they can fence in the less conservative Republicans. They can count on them to find the Democrats so unacceptable that they will go, and, and vice versa. So that grabbing, if you can grab the center, you can command the whole organization. That is not true in Canada. And that has been proven again and again and again because it's a multi-party system, because politics are less tribal. Uh, as Preston Manning discovered, and as Brian Mulroney discovered before him, if the suburb, what are we going to call them? The, the suburban, the Ontario conservatives. If they don't heed the legitimate interests of Western conservatives, Western conservatives will walk. But also vice versa. If, if, if Western conservatives try to say, you know, our ultra-libertarian politics, no vaccination, no mandates, we're, we're going to try to foist that on the whole party, the suburbs in Ontario can walk in a way that doesn't happen in the United States. So one of the differences in the United States the Democratic Party is a big, messy coalition, and the Republican Party is a smaller and more cohesive bunch. In Canada, it's the other way around. I mean, the liberals are now the more cohesive. They are the party of the downtowns, of people with a lot of education, of knowledge workers. Um, they are people I, – I, my guess is you bring any six liberals together, and you're going to see people who have a lot more in common than they have dividing them. The Conservative Party in Canada functions the way the Democratic Party does. And it's a mess, much messier coalition. Um, and people are distracted by that because it's less ethnically diverse uh, than the Liberals. But it is more geographically diverse, more socioculturally diverse. 
So managing that is a real problem. And so that means everyone has to, and this is, has always been the Canadian excellence when Canadian politics is done well, has to, you're just Charlie Chaplin playing the waiter, taking a lot of plates through the revolving door and you can't afford to drop them. So this is true for any party leader, but especially for a conservative party leader, you have to be unity minded and you have to remember how broad your coalition is and how broad the coalition you want is because the coalition the conservatives have got is not broad enough. It needs to be broader still. Um, and the good news is that because of the incredible success of Canada at preserving its middle class and at making us uh, integrating immigrants in an effective way, the ethnic divisions are much more traversable than in the United States. That it is very easy to imagine um, a substantial immigrant descended, a recent immigrant descended block within the conservative party. That, that, that it is not, it's not as upsetting or shocking to imagine them crossing that line. But managing that is, is very, very challenging without writing off anybody. But as Preston Manning discovered, and as Brian Moon discovered, you can't govern from the center and expect everyone else to salute. May I just pick up something you said, David? You, you, you talked about the need for the Conservative Party of Canada, not simply to uh, sustain its core base of supporters, but to, to build on it if it wants to compete in, in national elections. Are there any ideas or issues um, that you think could form the basis of what one might describe as a sort of 50% plus one conservatism, one that seeks to expand the party's reach with new and different voters? Well, I think the conservatives actually have identified the issue. They just haven't got this, the, the key to turn the lock. And that issue is home ownership. And Pierre Poilevre has talked a lot about this. this. This is a potent, potent issue. You know, Canada is a highly urban society. And at any given moment, some of the urban centers are doing a better job of producing employment than others. So sometimes Montreal is at the forefront, other times not. So right now it's with Toronto and Vancouver, Calgary recovering, Montreal lagging. So the, num the, the job employment centers are comparatively few, certainly compared to the United States. And so that idea that, well, I don't like it here in San Francisco, I'll move to Denver or to Austin, it's harder to do in Canada. And so the affordability of housing, where the jobs are, is a huge issue. And it ties to everything else. It ties to family formation. Uh, it ties to people's optimism about the future. So finding policies to build a nation of homeowners. Um, now, the homes don't have to be on the ground. They may be stacked in the sky. And you have to find ways to make that work. Um, and that means thinking creatively about, do daycare centers have to be in different buildings than where the homes are? Why can't daycare centers be in the same building? as the homes. And that, that, that involves zoning laws um, but and other, other kinds of issues. But think if, if you could take an elevator to daycare rather than walk through the slush and snow, <laughs> that would make a lot of difference to people's lives. Those are the kinds of issues that, uh, but the, the homeownership is issue, I think, issue one for a party of the center-right in Canada. Well, why don't we wrap up there, David, and maybe we can take that up in another episode because I think you're right. Not, not only is it a politically potent issue, it's a, uh, one with deep economic uh, importance because, as you say, um, our major urban centers are our major sources of investment and employment and opportunity. And if housing unaffordability becomes a break on that economic activity, it, it will have national consequences. David, thanks uh, for joining once again for, for an episode of From Dialogues. Uh, on behalf of our listeners and viewers, I want to thank you and, and look forward to uh, our next conversation in a couple of weeks. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.